Journalist Stuart Nicholson is an acclaimed UK jazz writer with several books on jazz history, several notable biographies, numerous articles in magazines and newspapers, and, as if that's not enough, he used to be a visiting professor and guest lecturer too. Now deeply ensconced with his uh, editing hat on, Mr Nicholson, Welcome to the show. I am absolutely delighted and honoured to be in your company, Talking Jazz. Talking Jazz. How nice. No apology. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Audrey. Let's see where all this leads. It sounds most interesting. Well, you know where we're going to start is the fact that there's no question about your creds as an author and as a jazz critic. And so respected, actually, is your word amongst academics and musicians and fans and pundits alike, that it really is almost a joy to behold. But that's not how it all began. So what was it that propelled you to switch from making music to writing about it? Well, that was at the time when uh, there, there was a bit of a recession in the United Kingdom. That was uh, the beginning of the uh, 1980s. Um, we'd just gone through the what was then known as the winter of discontent and uh, uh, employment opportunities were diminishing uh, for the band. They started asking me, can I do a quartet or something like that when I had uh, you know, a, a, a sort of an 11-piece band with three rogue crude and a sound mixer traveling all over the country and uh, it was almost in sort of a form of protest withdrawing my labor which is very uh, fashionable at the moment and quite rightly too against the <coughs> the sins of the conservative government and uh, I started writing uh, for I, I was uh, living in South Wales which is where I was born and there's a, a the national Welsh national newspaper is called the Western Nail, and I had done their dances, their annual dances, and their summer dances, uh, for oh crikey, it must be about four or five years, and, and and so pretty well knew the editors and everybody there because most people want to know, you know, the band leader sort of thing and have a chat and and trying to get a sense of your value system and all that kind of thing. Uh, and the the arts editor said, um, you know, let me know if you ever feel like writing about, um, because I know you're very passionate about jazz, aren't you? And I said, yes, indeed. And that's how it started. I started doing various reviews for them. And, uh, and then it sort of moved on to the independent. Uh, and I started doing reviews for them. Then I wrote a book called Jazz the Modern Resurgence, which was published um, at the end of the 1980s, because I was quite fascinated by that decade, because we had, you know, people like Count Basie, Benny Goodwin, uh, all these jazz heroes still walking the earth amongst us, yes. uh, whilst young musicians like Wynton Marsalis and uh, Scott Hamilton uh, in the mainstream uh, arena and various other young musicians that were coming through and, and then we had the downtown scene in in New York City which was a lot of very interesting music came out as a result of that uh, and I thought it was quite a unique decade because uh, not only did we have the jazz heroes applying their craft but you could go into another club and, and be ultra modern and ultra avant-garde and then you could hear jazz rock and you know jazz fusion and it was, it was such an interesting decade you know and that's leaving aside you know all the great jazz singers which were still uh still uh applying their craft you know Ella Fitzgerald, Betty Carter I don't even know where you got the groove from. Honestly, <laughs> I want to know where it came from, Stuart, because 
something else that I picked up, and you know this because I, when I wrote to you, I, I, I told you, I said, the reason I like what you're saying is when you're talking about um, jazz and you're talking about the musicians, it's clear that you love not only the music, but that you love and respect the musicians. So to me, it was clear. I didn't remember. I It will become apparent as we carry on with our chat, but I hadn't quite joined the dots on, on, on who you were. And so where did it come from? Was it just your listening ear? Oh, crikey. Um, well, um, when uh, it was a very big deal when I was about five or six, um, my father had been saving up to get a record player, an electric record player. <laughs> he came back, he came uh, home with the record player and a pile of CDs, which he bought at a secondhand record shop. And uh, he too was a, a jazz fan. Um, and his brother actually, uh, hitchhiked up to London in 1931 to see Louis Armstrong's first tour in the United Kingdom. Wow. And that was from South Wales. And it was quite a journey that <laughs> at wow. the time, no M4s yes. or anything like yes. that. So um, I've been uh, kind of immersed in the music uh, from a very young age. Um, and of course, my mother was a, a great classical music fan, um, and, and so I was immersed in classical music as well. Uh, and uh, it, it sort of simply evolved from that, you know. Um, Best of both worlds, jazz <laughs> and classical music too. Yes, well, I have quite the same enthusiasm for classical music, but although um, I have great respect for it and have played it, of course. Yeah, uh, but. Um, uh, my my great love has always been jazz, and um, uh, and just following not only the latest friends, but the, the latest recordings by jazz greats and, and jazz singers, and uh, well, every area of jazz really, which which um, totally fascinates me. I'm afraid I'm not one of the pe these people who say, "Oh, I don't like that," you know. Um, because I always remember, um, I, I was I was um, one of my first uh, lectures was actually in this was in this country at a musical conservatory. I won't mention the name, uh, but the person came up to me after the, the thing. He said, "That's all very interesting." He said, "But um, classical music is a lot of rubbish." He said Beethoven, "What's the point in listening to him?" And I thought, well. Unwittingly, he told me more about him <laughs> than, than he re really realised, you know, because what, what you had is sort of a closed mind syndrome. And and to me, uh, the more music I can appreciate, the broader the net that I can cast, the more fun I get out of life. It's just yeah. as simple as that. Do you know, it's interesting. You've said a few things there, Stuart. Very early on, you, you talked about values. OK, you talked about values in terms of the music. And then you were just talking about attraction and what attracted you to it and the fact that it must absolutely evolve. And, you know, I don't want to get into this, 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 this argument of, you know, uh, the old ways and the new ways. But but it's a it's a serious debate because on the one hand, what I see is the exciting things happening in music not just in the uk especially female-led ensembles and i mean the name you we could go on forever uh, and that's just looking at the uk and uk female and then you bring in the uk guys as well you yousef days you alfred miss you these kind of people even people like um for example what are they called uh, children of zeus you know, what they're doing is they are merging jazz and hip hop. And you know that to the purist, that isn't jazz. And you know to the purist that what they're doing is not kind of palatable to their ears. But if the music is to continue as it is, and I believe it's in a really exciting phase now, especially with Afrobeat in as well, and a bit of Ragga in Jamaica, is that not a good thing? 
can we not? Of course it is. It, the, 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 the thing is that the music creates its own space and its own time. And you can either try and be a part of it, try and broaden your horizons, or remain apart from it. It's as simple as that, really. And but time will tell um, whether any music, not just jazz, um, uh, has any, any longevity. And one of the problems that I think a lot of jazz musicians uh, are facing today is that um, they'll make a, an album and it, its longevity is probably 18 months at the most. And then they feel compelled to make another one and, and so on. And, and gradually, um, whereas in the, if, if we look at the, the uh, greats, um, you know, Miles Davis, his kind of blue, as we all know, still remains one of the best-selling jazz albums. It's, it's, it's stood the test of time. And and it's perhaps unfair to to compare, you know, the the the, the, the people who are first in, uh, the first to do something. Um, but we are actually entering a sort of era, or have long entered an era from I, I guess about the mid nineties, the virtuosic recapitulation. It's different ways of doing things, and one um, of one of the problems which all music has to face, you know, whether it's opera, classical music, uh, rock, pop, uh, they all face this, you know, how, how if you're in the classical music world uh, and you're a composer, how do you imagine you can be compared and mentioned in the same breath as Mozart or Beethoven? And this goes on and on, and and the, the one of the things in rock music, for example, is 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 that musicians were were just regurgitating well-known licks, There's, and and I think there was a very interesting paper I read that that someone had analysed a whole host of contemporary rock solos, and referenced them back to the originals, you know. Uh, from the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, and, and in a sense, jazz has got that problem, um, which has been accentuated in a sense by jazz education, dare I say it, oh. because jazz has been broken down into a series of modules for each semester. And basically there are, um, using, for example, John Coltrane as, as, as a model to negotiate chord changes. Um, and that is done largely through patterns to get the, um, the student able to go through various chord changes and understand how to approach them uh, by using patterns, you know, one, one, two, three, five, um, for example, constituted about 25% of John Coltrane's giant steps, for example. Um, and he used variations of that pattern, whether inverted or um, you know, sort of uh, extended, uh, and this is a, um, a way which jazz can be broken down and taught. Uh, it's a very useful way, uh, and there's, there is a considerable um, similarity both in in execution and imagination of of a, a lot of musicians who have been taught this is the way to improvise, but um, have not explored, for example, melodic improvisation. Um, and I can remember having, well, I've had several conversations with Gary Burton, who's not not just a vibes player, but um, the- I love Gary Burton. <laughs> who's, who, yes, who, who before he retired was the, the head of Berkeley College of Music and a major jazz educator, the major jazz educator. Um, and and he was saying that, and he said, don't quote me on this, but of course I am quoting him. But it was more in joke than, than, than uh, in, in seriousness. But he said, the trouble is 
there are so many jazz educators, they probably don't know how to teach melodic um, uh, improvisation. And he said, you know, when I joined Stan Getz's uh, quartet, I was listening to, you know, the greatest um, melodic improviser probably in jazz. And, and I thought, oh, right, that's, that's the way I've got to go. That's the way I've got to learn. Uh, and if you listen to um, any of his solos, they're so creative. Um, and I, I think we have got ourselves into a sort of a, a bit of a conundrum where um, every now and again we, we get in the press um, the the jazz explosion or you know youth jazz explosion and, and so on and so forth and um but it, time will tell um and, and and i just think every now and again the music has got to renew itself and it'll renew itself in different ways and if it finds an audience then it will survive if, if it doesn't um you know if if the musicians then carry on to uh, go into academe and and uh, become teachers themselves, then then we have this kind of you know narrowing of of the possibilities of jazz. And I think one of the interesting things to me was um, well in 2011 I was at uh, a jazz festival and uh, and um, I was on a panel uh, and it was after I, I had written a book called Is Jazz Dead or Is It Moved to a New Address. Uh, and um, one one of the one of the floor said, "Well, it's, it's all right for you." He said, um, "How many how many jazz festivals do you go to then? How, how many jazz concerts do you go to in a year?" Uh, and at that time, I was being fortunate enough to be invited to any number of jazz festivals across Europe. And I would go to about two festivals a month, so that's about three or four days um, of of music from you know sort of midday to midnight. And uh, and I estimate you, you probably see over a three day periods, say twenty four bands. So every every month, you know, I would see forty eight concerts a month. Uh, sometimes I would see go to three festivals. Um, in a month and so that's 576 concerts a year and over a 10-year period that's 5760 concerts now that's not as much as many of my european colleagues um in in in, in um, jazz journalism uh but it's certainly more more than most and uh and since these festivals were across a wide variety of countries. For example, I was asked to chair the Australian Jazz Awards, for example, down in Melbourne. So they very kindly flew me out. And I, I was able to experience at first hand, you know, the Australian jazz scene and, and, and uh, meet various major movers and shakers. And, and you know, and I think um, one of the things about um, one of the most important things is is um, seeing jazz in its own context. So, you know, an LP can tell us so much, but uh, once you see um, a concert in its socio-cultural context, yes. um, it can alter meaning. Uh, it, it can enhance meaning. And uh, after about Ten years of this, I began to see a specific trend evolving, and, and that was thanks to jazz education, because it, of course it does have its plus points. Um, we can go into the way it's slightly taught slightly differently on the continent, um, which is a, another whole study in itself. But um, what was beginning to emerge was. Um, young um, European jazz musicians were begin beginning to displace American jazz musicians in the festival circuit. And this was the most unusual thing because traditionally promoters would build um, uh, their, their festival around American names. But all of a sudden you were getting very talented young European jazz musicians uh, emerging. 
there, was, there was a phrase when um, Boogie Vesselstoff from, um, from Norway, um, Esbjorn Svensson from Sweden, uh, began to move up the ratings. And, um, uh, and the more I looked into this, uh, or the more I the more music that I absorbed, one was beginning to see a specific trend that, that you know, jazz in France is different to jazz in Germany. Jazz in Germany is different to jazz in Norway. Jazz in Norway is different to jazz in in London. Jazz in London is 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 different to jazz in Italy. Jazz in Italy is different to jazz in Spain, and they all have their specific. Uh, idiosyncrasies. Uh, it's rather like um, the, the 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 way that Eng in English has become a lingua franca. It's spoken all over the world, but you can go to various countries, um, and it, it's spoken uh, quite interestingly and differently. And they attach different different meanings to different words or put. But words, which we know what they what they mean, but but, but their precise uh, dictionary definition doesn't fit the context of what they're saying. But it it, it becomes quite delightful to listen to the way that uh, the the English language has has become a lingua franca, but and spoken in many dialects. And and this is this is what has happened uh, in jazz. And that's when I came, that's when I came up with. Uh, the globalization, globalization theory, which is now being taught in several uh, conservatoires across Europe. Um, and that basically is that jazz has globalized, you know, it's from America, uh, crossed uh, boundaries, and it's, it, it's the first major musical trend to spread its wings around the world via recordings. And recordings will go to various parts of the world and people would listen to it then they would imitate it uh, and begin to get into authentic american jazz and and for years and years it was it was widely thought that that unless jazz is played in the american style uh it would be inauthentic well, therein lies the problem, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but then, then we had original thinkers in in, in Norway, and in the nineteen sixties in, in in London in the United Kingdom, you know, um, for example, um, Dame Cleo Lane or Cleo Lane as she was then, Johnny Danquith, made a specific choice not to sing in, in, in you know, uh, an American style, you know, uh, using the yes. wide vowels. I have to stop you, Stuart. You are, <laughs> I tell you, you, you must have mentioned about 30 names there that <laughs> each deserve investigation in their own right. Um, Dame Cleo Lane, Johnny Dankworth, uh, 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 the point that you made there about specifically about wanting to stay British, which you know is a, is also something that's common with an awful lot of the, whatever you want to call it, neo-soul, neo-jazz, kind of jazzy hip-hop kind of stuff. That's all about being authentic. It's about speaking in their voice. But, you know, honestly, you, you mentioned so many things because we started off with education and I was going to come in and say immediately, don't you think it's when you get into talking about it and chordal structures and modals and this and that and the other, that it's that that perhaps kind of turns people off. I mean, it's just like, why can't it just be a great track? But then I almost took that back because you continued speaking and then you talked about form and you talked about structure and you talked about various things that had to be in record and it kind of prodded me into a question that I've always wondered Stuart which is, <laughs> is do I only like one record is it actually one record is it is it actually a a, a kind of a derivation of something of, of, but, but that's 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 for us for another time quite interestingly on, on that um the, the Polish trumpeter, Thomas Stanko, who, who sadly died, uh, I think, two years ago, but 
uh, I, I used to know uh, quite well. And um, and he said, he said uh, because he made, he obviously made a, a lot of lot of jazz recordings, uh, and um, returned to the ECM label uh, where he recorded some sort of latter day classics, really, and. And I was talking to him about this because it, it, there was a period when he 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 was um, uh, let's not beat about the bush a drug addict, which um, for a very sensitive soul like him, um, trying to play jazz in a communist state as as Poland was before the, the, the Berlin Wall came down. Um, had a, a, an effect on him, but then he, when when uh, Poland got its independence, um, he immediately clear, clear cleared up his act and became a, a vegetarian and a, doing all the things which you're supposed to do, eat carrot juice and so on, uh, and. And, and I said to him, um, you, you must be really pleased the way that your 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 career has has developed, um, you know, since since um, uh, the, the, the wall came down. And he said, well, most of us have only got one song in us. And he said, I'm playing that song in as many different ways as I can. And I thought that was quite a profound sort of statement yeah. coming from him. Uh, and uh, I've thought about it, and, and it, it does have resonance in a lot of music which we we listen to um, when we consider jazz as a solo art, as as a, in itself. But sorry, we you you're saying that you only like one one album, and that sort of resonates with that. I wouldn't say that like, I only like one album. What I was saying is, is is it is it kind of the same song? So is is kind of blue the same as four women? Is it the same as Poinciana? Is it the same as as Naima? Is it the same as I mean I'm trying I'm, I'm if I were if I would mix it I say just say for example I was sat there in front of my computer and I was mixing and I wanted to mix any of those tracks would mix in very very beautifully with each other because they've all got the same kind of I say the same kind of a groove, but it is honestly, it's a question for another day because I know that there's an answer and I know that you're itching to give me the answer and I know you've got the answer, but there's so much more I want to talk to you about. I've been looking at your blog, Stuart, um, which is how, oh, don't look so worried, which is <laughs> how I came across you, uh, 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 obviously in the first place, which, which was a, an independent piece that you'd, you'd written about, about uh, radio. And it also brings me onto your photography as well, because I love Nina Simone. And as I clicked onto your website and went into photography, it was the picture of Nina Simone. And then I went into the blog, which obviously was a wonderful account of her life. It was wonderful. Uh, I love her, you know, and there wasn't anything that I sort of looked in that and thought, oh, I wonder, nothing. And there were things in there that I didn't know as well. So I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So for that, thank you. Um, as a true, as a true Nina fan. But I wonder, Stuart, and bearing in mind what I've just said there, that you're somebody who, like me, isn't scared to tell it as it is. Nina always said, didn't she, that an artist has no choice it's kind of incumbent upon them to write about the times in which they're 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 in. There's something like that. I think that's that that that's kind of how the quote um, went. You know, she says something like, "You know, you can't help it." Um, what do you think that Nina would be saying now? Well, cracking. It's impossible to second guess anybody, but. Um... And well, you know she would probably, she, she would, and the, and you know rather a lot about her and the inner Nina Simone, which is, um, yes, um, I think, um, I think the one th great thing, uh, about Nina Simone is, um, how she was an artist denied because of her color because she wanted to be a classical musician, that's what she was. Um, and the way that she reinvented 
um, herself, particularly on the album Little Girl Blue, um, which um, the track My Baby Don't Care For Me uh, came from. Um, what we have there is an emergence of not only a voice, but a very talented pianist. Uh, and I think there is um, a powerful duality of work here because I, I always feel that she wanted to play more piano, uh, but people wanted her because she had just a, a, an amazing and moving voice. Um, she she became a, a sort of stand-up, you know, singer rather than singing more at the piano, which she did in the in the seventies and part of the eighties. And there's certainly a sense of a, of, a, of a talent, I wouldn't say unfulfilled, but not fully fulfilled in the sense that um, she, she expressed a, a great deal or, or, or experienced, I should say, a, a great deal of frustration, um, not only with the jazz business, um, but uh, obviously the racial situation, which of course still remains horrendous in the United States. And and she moved, of course, to Africa. And uh, uh, and, and this is this to me seems to be symptomatic of an artist who um, is trying to find peace with herself and and not knowing quite in what quite what quite in what direction uh, to turn. Um, and certainly, there is she, like any normal person. Uh, would be revolted by people on the right wing of politics, um, horrible people like Trump, and and you you wonder how on earth a person like that, or a person like Boris Johnson in this country, can possibly be elected. But they they've got a they've got elected, and she would have she would probably have burst a blood vessel because she didn't hold back in in, in what she thought and. Uh, and and we all feel frustration at a, a political system which has let this country down, uh, where just three percent of the uh, very rich profit by uh, the, the from the rest of us really. Uh, we are in the them and us society, which has been manufactured over this last twelve years, and even established and long-standing conservative conservatives like max hastings for example who was um the editor of the um the daily telegraph which has been called uh, the voice of the tory party at prayer um even he says that, that this government sooner this government stands aside the better he said they've led this country to catastrophe we're a laughing stock abroad, and and that that was in a in an, an interview which um, I I saw in this last couple of days, and 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 so really, when you're confronted with the complete powerlessness which we have of, of a, a, a political system which um, has doomed us really to endure this government until their term runs out. There is frustration, and it's all coming to a head, and 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 not before time, I, sh I, I should say, um, because the, the there was no reason for austerity to be imposed by George Osborne twelve years ago when he became Chancellor. There, there, there was no reason. Serious academics um, in the United States said that that the way that Britain was trying to solve its economic problems was complete complete smoke and mirror stuff and, and and it was designed really to disadvantage and um, make a foothold for uh, disaster capitalism to take over what, what, what happened look what happened last year I mean, we don't have to talk about what happened 20 years ago. We can talk about <laughs> what happened last week. Um, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, I suppose what I was was kind of getting at, you, you, the way that you frame that answer, Stuart, you make it sound 
like it's really political, is it? Is it? The oh, I think we're all political, aren't we? Um, and uh, because we're all influenced by the decisions of uh, politicians and we all have our opinions. And it just depends really to what degree of interest and research that you go to to arrive at the conclusions which you do. And I, I think, um, for example, you know, Boris Johnson um, deliberately withheld the Russia report and redacted an awful lot of it. But there was still enough in it, as uh, Dominic Grieve, uh, who was the chair of the uh, political committee which produced it, pointed out that Russian influence is so ingrained in the Conservative Party that it's almost impossible to remove. Now, those are, those are the exact words of the Russia report, which is a cross-party committee uh, tasked with looking into uh, the extent of political influence in this country. And they further came to the alarming conclusion that neither MI5 nor MI6 was tasked with, with, with looking into this themselves. And so all this has gone completely under the wire. And it's there in the Russia report. You, you can, at this moment, you can go on to the internet, uh, ukgov.uk, and put Russia report, print it off, and it, it's, it, it's not lightweight reading, shall we say, uh, but it is absolutely astonishing the facts that are contained in there. And yet we carry, we're carrying on as if nothing has happened, you know, that, 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 and they, conservative government said, we have no evidence of Russian interference in the Brexit uh, vote, uh, which is all very well, but that, that's sophistry because they made no attempt to find out if there was Russian influence uh, in the same way that, um, in, in America, there are committees uh, set up to look to see what the extent of Russian influence was on American democracy after Trump came in. And in both instances, we find that the Russian influence is, is widespread. And, and in, as the Russia report said, uh, it, you know, in its own words, it's so widespread, it's difficult to know how how we can sort of get out of this situation where Russian oligarchs are, are, are sort of almost bribing um, UK politicians. And there is enough evidence of you know, conservative politicians um, taking jobs in countries owned by Russian oligarchs. And, and yet going into parliament and quite happily voting away and, uh, and you wonder to what extent this political influence actually goes. Well, well, well all, all I was trying to get to really, Stuart, was, you know, the, obviously we have nobody here from the government to answer any of these claims uh, <laughs> that, that, that you're making. And obviously, you know, they're your point of view and you're perfectly in Well, no, what I'm citing is the Russia report. And everyone is free to uh, download it and come to their own conclusions. And uh, I'm sure Dominic Grieve would be, who, the, who was the former chair who produced it, would be happy to answer in detail any anybody's uh, queries. But we're yes, getting away from jazz. Yes, we are, because what I was asking was, is it, what, what, what is the relevance to jazz? Because, you know, I asked you, what do you think Nina Simone would be saying now? And, and I think what Nina Simone would be saying is, number one, which is a question that I always ask, which is <laughs> what you and I are going to come back to next year, which is, uh, where are the folk? Because it's a burning question. I've been going to jazz gigs for 30 years, Stuart. And trust me, and I've been presenting um, over a 20-year period. And I know who my audience is, and I know who the audience is um, at gigs. Mm. And I am very grateful 
to that audience. Don't don't you get me wrong. I'm absolutely grateful. But you're talking ninety eight percent white. That's what you talk. I've I've, I've 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 been taking photographs because I want to think. I think it's about time I did a thesis because I think it is. It breaks my heart. Number one, that all black people don't claim it because I claim it. I absolutely want it. There is no way, Stuart. It's like yes, I will have a bit of that. Thank you very much indeed. I am proud that those people did what they did. I know what they did. I know the part that they played in life and in culture and in society. So I want that. And as a black person living in society where we are today, with all of the, in inverted commas, stuff going on, Stuart, I want that. I'm, I'm clinging to that absolutely 100%. That is excellence personified. And it's beauty and it's courage and it's danger and it's anger and it's, it's, it's truth. And this is, you know, what I think, this is what I, I feel about jazz. Mm. Uh, and this is why I, and, and I say jazz, it's jazz, R&B. So I'm, I'm very cheeky, you know, I say, I play you the very best of the old, the new, the borrowed and the blues, all in a jazzy vibe, which means, he said, you know, good King Wenceslas. Well, obviously, that's Little Girl Blue. Um but anyway, um, seriously, it is. It is that 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 is that that is what I believe is is absolutely so very wonderful. I tried to. But but you and I know what the reality of life is for black folk. So I think number one, what Nina might be saying is, where are the folk? Because I know that folk used to come out and watch her. But I think she would be saying you know she's still singing i wish i knew how it would be to be free it's it's the same song Stuart. it's the same song yes yes i i, I think i think you have a point there um as, as i say it's it, it's impossible to, to second guess but um you know she was politically motivated and um and quite right too uh through the horrendous goings on in the uh, civil rights struggles and um, and the sad thing is um, we've still got a 21st century 20th century problems and, and you know um, and society doesn't look as if it's learning history uh, is doomed to repeat itself uh, simply because people don't seem to be interested in learning from what has gone on to help improve other people's lives. It's all always about the self, and this this is a, a, you know a, a perennial problem of a capitalist society. Yes, but not for you, and that's the point. You are telling other people about it. You really are sharing that that joy and that beauty, Stuart. And you know, I kind of wonder. I mean, I get it because I'm I'm into the groove and I I I hear what you hear. But why don't black people support jazz? Why? Why don't they dig jazz? Well, I've got no answer to that. Um, and, and why don't more white people? Uh, engage with jazz well, the, the um, answer is, is they do i go to these gigs and honestly i am excited it and you're not talking about an old group audience you're talking about an average source of 30 somethings they're they're there they're cutting out they've got the vibe they're into the groove they're getting it they're into the music you know they're they're kind of this all this you know an immersive experience. You and I, Stuart, would call it going to a gig, but this immersive experience. But they are absolutely into it, and I, I, I love them because of it. Because I want our music to thrive. I want it to grow. I want it to carry on. You know, but life is difficult. Life is different, and you know, you. Well, I think one of the one of the great problems we've got. In this country, is is that um, the, the sure, government and 
and not funding the music to the extent that they should do. They've completely withdrawn from their responsibility for the arts, which include music, which includes jazz. And may I may I just say something for one second, and then we'll come on to music education. You talked about Nina Simone being courageous, okay? You talked about her being courageous in terms of speaking out. And obviously, you know, we, we could, you know, it would, it would, we would need another program to look at, uh, about another six programs to look at the things that you and I have touched on today. But you doing what you did and you doing what you do, Stuart, and with the love and care that you do it, I think is courageous. I think it's an expression of love. You are an educator. But I don't think you're an educator because you think you know it all. I think you're an education because you love you love it. Um, and it's important. And it's important that it continues. So there you go. There's another round of applause for you. I mean, I'm not <laughs> wrong, am I? Well, I, I, I do have to put my hand on my heart. And I always do f feel that it's a question of wanting to share, um, you know, the joy of the music, the the passion of the music, the pain of the music, um, and uh, I'm trying to, I think, open doors because one of my one of my books, which is this one here, um, which is very reasonably priced at nine pounds ninety nine. Quite right. So is this is this? And, 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 and basically, that that is me trying to engage people uh, in in jazz. Um, and uh, a, a friend of mine who teaches at the New School in um, New York, uh, in Manhattan, um, said that, what did he say? He said something to the effect that, um, um, oh yes, it, 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 the text is enlightened and lightning, enough to make experienced jazz fans listen with fresh ears. and. And that's what that's what I was I was trying to do, trying to open doors not just to people who want to get into jazz, um, and, and this is my little my little uh, way of trying to open doors for people, um, but also trying to interest established fans because people. people you know, one thing about jazz fans is they can be a little bit dogmatic, dare I say it. I like this, you know, I like this, I know what I like. Um, and, uh, and, and and it's just trying to, you know, share my enthusiasm in music and say, well, look, have you considered this? Have you considered this? You know, why don't you give this a go? And I do a little uh, uh, sort of a, a sort of a playlist at the end of each chapter um sort of highlighting stuff which is uh not trying to show off my knowledge of music but trying to alert people to music they may not have listened to that is exceptionally engaging and 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 and, and hopefully if they listen with open ears that will sweep them away with with the same enthusiasm which um Absolutely. You know, you're talking about quotes and things that people have said about you. My favourite quote, and especially because you've talked about Miles Davis, who incidentally is my uh, number one man, uh, oh, along, yes, yeah. with, along with Stevie Wonder, who's my number one man. Along oh, yeah, I've seen him live, Davis, Stevie Wonder, a couple of times. Well, I tell you, I've told you that you and I are going to be speaking. We, you know, we just, why don't we just do a regular weekly, let's have a chat <laughs> about who you who else have you talked to this week, Stuart? Hmm. Um, I mean, seriously, um, my favourite quote um, comes from uh, the saxophonist Bob Belden. And he actually says of your book, he says, it's your kind of blow. <laughs> Obviously making an analogy to Miles <laughs> Davis's masterpiece. So when he's talking about your book, this is, you know, the... Uh, is jazz dead? Yeah. No, that was. Um, oh no, that wasn't that one. It's the other one. Jazz and culture. Jazz, the, the, jazz and the culture one. That's this the is one this is the one. This is my favorite book. Yeah, that's the one. That yeah, jazz and culture in the, in the is, global age, is, and that's is your kind of blue. So is it your kind of blue? Because I know that you. Uh, well, um, it, it's the one which I, I've 
uh, sweated the most blood over. And um, the one which I have tried to explain how a number of a number of sort of um, things people might take for granted, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, different cultures will hear Music. the same record, but they, they attach their own meanings to it. Um, it's not just different the, cultures, it's, it's different people, Stuart. You know, if, exactly. if you and I an album and said, pick your, pick your tracks, you and Abbott, actually, we'd probably go for track number five. No, <laughs> if you gave, if you gave you, and it's always track number five, if you gave you and I an album um, and the same album and said, choose your track, you and I would choose different tracks. And that is the beauty of music, isn't it? That is the beauty. Yes, but, of but on, on, on a grander scale, there's a bland assumption, um, because I've spoken to many um, uh, music educators in, in the United States, uh, many musicians and many fans too, there's a bland assumption that jazz is universal. In other words, it has a universal meaning. Um, in fact, I, there's, I've even got an album by the Kenny Clark, Francie Boland big band called Jazz is Universal, which, which um, presupposes that everyone hears jazz for, for what it is, but it's interpreted in a myriad of different ways. And, and I try and uh, probe a little bit more deeply than I, I, I hope I, in my normal writing in trying to explain why, how do we listen to music? You know, uh, what is the process by which people of different cultures all listen to music? What is the process which we take or extract what, what is known as referential meanings from the music. And also it must be how we're feeling at the time as well, Stuart, because you and I can listen to a track on one day and it will make us feel elated and we can listen to a track, the, the same track another day and because we're, we're, we're low, it can take us to where we want. Well, I, I, I always use the analogy um, uh, of John Coltrane's Live in Seattle. And I, I say, you know, would I play that at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning? And the answer is uh, probably not. <laughs> but okay. then it, just a matter of a few hours earlier, at, okay. at, at two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning, after a couple of red wines, it all makes perfect sense. It's most exhilarating and uplifting music you could possibly imagine. Um, so you're quite right, you know, uh, and, and that comes brings back to what I said fairly uh, uh, early on in, in, in our chat, when, and that was the context can transform and enhance meaning. And, uh, you know, that's a classic example of, of, of although a little bit crude, I acknowledge, uh, but how uh, context can change, change meaning, you know, um, because what can make sense, you know, at, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night, um, doesn't make the same amount of success, or at least you, you, you're not, you're not in the right receptive mood to receive that uh, complicated information, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, or, you know, during, perhaps even during the day, really, you know, it, because jazz is essentially a nocturnal music, I was, I was, <laughs> I know, but isn't it isn't it just so gorgeous? You know, it's like it's to me. I I look at it almost like it's too good a secret to keep to myself. You know, and you know, in lockdown, I came up with all these phrases. You know, I did the as far as I'm concerned, Stuart. I did the first mixtapes in lockdown. They, I went into I went into to um uh, the pandemic. I had to have uh, I went into isolation 15th of March 2020 and I started doing mixed shows and I came up with music is you know my music medicine for your soul and uh you know to 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 cure the corona the corona uh lockdown blues and you know I coined all of these phrases but obviously what I was talking about was 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 actually the well-known uh, benefits of music uh, mm. when you are in deep times of stress and trouble and 
this and that and the other. And, you know, I talked about the fact that I thought that you were courageous in terms of some of the topics that you that you've talked about, because I don't think it's easy talking about, in inverted commas, issues of race. And you, you, you've done it and you, 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 you've kind of, you know, as far as I've been concerned, you've done it with, 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 you know, your usual sort of scrupulous, like investigating skills, but also with integrity and with respect for the people that you're talking about. And, I, and, and you know, if I wanted to say one word, I think, to kind of sum up Stuart Nicholson, I think that's what I'd say. I'd say respect. Absolutely. Oh, that's very nice of you. I, um, I shall sleep a lot more soundly in my bed tonight. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. I'm going to ask you your last question. It's a gorgeous one. Obviously, you've written about everybody. You've met millions of people. You've got thousands of photographs. You've your your life has been ensconced in in this this heady, gorgeous world of jazz. I'm going to ask you a killer question. <laughs> Oh, look at <laughs> What song do you wish you could have written? If it were, if you could um, have the ability for anything, what song? I would say Mozart's Piano Concerto in A Major. Because? Oh, C Major, sorry. Mozart's Piano Concerto in C Major. Because it is one of the most beautiful pieces. The slow movement is one of the most beautiful pieces of music. Uh, one of the beautiful, most beautiful melodies. And the extraordinary thing is um, that it opens with a C major triad, <laughs> C-E-G. <laughs> and Wait, so I can remember talking to Keith, Keith Jarrett, who was about to... Um, no, no, no. Was performing... You have to say to the uninitiated what that means, C-E-G. What does that mean? <laughs> Oh, well, uh, the scale of C, ah. the scale of C starts on C and ends on C, and it has uh, 12 tones. Um, but the triad, or the chord, the basic tonality of the scale of C is derived from the notes C, E, and G. And that sets the um, emotional climate in which we understand the key of C. Uh, the key of C minor would be C, E flat, G. And minor is, uh, we associate with um, sadness and, 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 uh, and, and, and ma uh, C major, we associate with positivity. But basically, the triad of, of C is just so Basic. It's probably the first thing any person who um, has ever sat behind a piano keyboard would learn as a toddler. C E G. And I, I can remember talking to Keith Jarrett, who was working on this because he was about to give a performance with a Philharmonic Orchestra in America, and he said he spent probably the best part of a week trying to get the most even and the most expressive way of playing this basic triad. And when you listen to it, when you listen to Mozart's Piano Concerto in C major, um, it, of course, the slow movement begins with, with this, this, this triad, and it, it's, it's almost breathtaking in its meaning, the, the context which Mozart has placed it in. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so that, that, that is, is a piece of music which for the gods <laughs> i love that i love that description breathtaking mm. what a beautiful turn of phrase you have throughout mr <laughs> nicholson what it leaves me to do is to uh tell you to get on with that editing of the ella book <laughs> you never know by the time we put this out you might have finished have you got a a, a, a date for publication for the the, the rerun the, the, um, I'm hoping to try and get it finished. I'm on chapter 12, and I think I've got another... Either, I don't like to look ahead because it puts me off, but um, or daunts me, I should say. But I think I've got another four or five chapters to go. 
Um, but it's been, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's, it's been great fun because so much more has come to light about Ella since, since I, I wrote it. Uh, and um, Including the fact that she uh, had a beautiful medallion made for Oscar Peterson. Yes, oh, I shall definitely, I shall definitely include that in, in, in the, in, in, in the um, rewrite. Um, I, I I have to ask you, please, Mr. Nicholson. I know, and I will accept, obviously, your classical choice. But seeing we're talking Ella, please choose for me a track for Ella to end. Well, I I, I think the one that I, I enjoy uh, probably. I'm, I'm just going through like like if you can imagine a series of filing cards um but the one i i enjoy because i think it captures ella at um at at, at her best and and and, and 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 i should preface this by saying many people have um criticized one of the major criticisms of, of ella fitzgerald by people who only have a sort of superficial or an understanding which they're not prepared to broaden would be that Ella lacks the gravitas of, of a singer like Billie Holiday um, and my argument is, is is that the blues and happiness have got an equal right to be expressed and um, on uh, Mac the Knife uh, recorded. You know, I knew you were going to say live in Berlin in 1964. Aren't but, you? <laughs> yes, you are. No, no. Uh, no not that it, one. Uh, okay. It, it's it's certainly live in Berlin, but I think it was 1958. Oh, and I, maybe I've got the year wrong. But it's yeah. an album. We're talking the same album where she's. Yes, I'm sure we are. Yes. And she forgets the word. We're going into the realms of discography now. <laughs> No, it's wonderful. But but I think that captures the the sheer joy Ella got from uh, from singing because that is what motivated her ultimately. Um, the the challenge of going before an audience. So, and and I and I did the liner notes for one of her albums, which was released by Verve last year, a concert which had only just been discovered. And I, I tried to put it in context. I I said if you think a bit about about it in today's terms. You know, uh, a singer will go out with an ice machine and a, uh, a synthy drummer and a MIDI and 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 uh, lights show and uh, an auto director uh, and and so on. Uh, whereas Ella just walked onto the stage, you know, a middle-aged lady who who let's not beat about the bush was a little bit overweight. With a fur coat on, obviously, how rich she was. Beautiful looking, and um, yeah, and she charmed audiences of up to 10, 12,000 people. And all she was was a black lady standing in front of a microphone with a, a white pin spotlight, accompanied by an acoustic piano, a double bass, and acoustic drums. With a voice it's absolutely voice. extraordinary. With a voice as pure as an angel. Yeah. Um, um, Aretha Franklin's another one. She stay, watch Aretha Franklin sing. She stands there. You watch these young singers sing and people sing, and you started to go into synth machines and this, that, and the other, and that's why I say we have to come back another day. That's another conversation. But you watch Aretha Franklin deliver a song, and if she is delivering it in 100 decibels, or in five decibels, Aretha Franklin delivers it by going, she's going, mm -hmm. yeah. you don't do, you know, you know, and, and the articulation, Bert Bacharach died, uh, obviously, as you know, we sadly lost Bert Bacharach a couple of weeks uh, last week. Um, I'm actually, by the time this goes out, I'll have done my tribute to Bert. I'm doing it for International Women's Week. So it's like song with all the ladies, you know. Mm. Love to Bert. So, um, um, but uh, yeah, uh, sadly, uh, Bert, uh, we 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 lost Bert Bacharach last week. But again, you know, people were then talking about 
um, how important it was, the art of composition, the popular song, you know, it was somehow dismissed. And actually what Bert Bacharach with his mate, you know, Hal David and Carol Beasager and what they did, the music that was being created, it was actually really, really important music. It wasn't just like pop, you know, it was the end of an era. He was, they, they said that he was the last of the few remaining great uh, people who were not performers, but who were composers. They were composers. Mind you, I have got him singing. I'm ending with a beautiful medley with him singing close to you with Barbara Streisand. Now, no, just... Check it out. I'll send you the link, actually. It's on, on YouTube. It is. Barbara Streisand, for me, has a voice which is... I mean, that, that to me is just... You know, when you think about God and you think about purity and you think about beauty, and that, that, that to me is kind of what music does what music can do where it can take you how it can make you you know it, it kind of transcends um, yeah I, I i of course she, she got very glossy as 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 time went on um yeah, but one of her first albums um was uh, she was recorded live and um and she sang a tune called stony end and on on, on that she is just remarkable um is so effortless, um, and 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 yet, um, that's seldom commented on. You know that because this was you know out and out belter. You know, and 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 yet she had just complete control of oh. the idiom. Oh. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for the time that you've spent. Well, I look forward today. to it already. <laughs> um, but absolutely, what. What an absolute pleasure and, uh, yeah, respect, Mr Nicholson. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time and for your trouble and uh, and I, I have enjoyed, well, as you must have realised, uh, just talking about the music I love. It's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs>